This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to yet another episode of Tau Unbound. I'm Ido Aharoni, your host. It is my great pr- uh, privilege and pleasure to host Dr. Oren Asman with us. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And uh, uh, this is not your first time in this, in this room, but it's your first time doing our Tau Unbound podcast, which is the official English language podcast. Let me just share with our viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself. Dr. Oren Asman is a lawyer and chair of psychiatric review committees. His academic work focuses on bioethics. We'll talk all about bioethics today and health law. He is a senior lecturer at the nursing department, director of the Bioethics and Law Center at the Faculty of Medicine and director of the Samueli Initiative for Responsible AI, Artificial Intelligence in Medicine at Tel Aviv University. You have a lot on your plate. Yeah. And I know that, um, that you also spent uh, your career, and I read about your, your background, is quite impressive. You spent time in all sorts of interesting places and other universities too, Harvard, Georgetown, jo- Johns Hopkins. You spent time in Europe, in Russia, in Austria, in Germany, even in Latin America, in Peru. So you have such a, an incredible broad perspective on the issue of, Of your specialty but before we begin tell us a little bit about yourself where you're from a little bit about your upbringing so <laughs> that's a great uh, question to begin with actually I was all prepared to you know s- jump straight into the big stuff but I think the personal aspect is really a great way to start talking about what we're gonna later talk about which is ethics so I think it's personal that's probably going to be my message through the uh, whole discussion we have. So uh, my name is Oren. I was born uh, in Haifa, um, quite a large uh, city, northern than here, than Tel Aviv. And, and you received your law degree from the University of Haifa. Right. So my uh, first and second uh, law degrees were from Haifa University, and then I uh, completed my uh, LL, LLD, which is uh, equivalent to a PhD in law at the Hebrew University in uh, Jerusalem. And throughout those uh, studies, I was uh, gradually looking more and more into the fields of uh, bioethics and law, which we will probably discuss uh, later. Um, I may just say that I think you talked about bringing, and I think uh, if we're going to talk about ethics, then there's a personal perspective to a lot of the things that we uh, uh, say and uh, what we choose to do. Um, do our research about and I believe that most of us focus on different issues whether we are aware of that or not uh, in some relation to our history so I would assume that uh, my uh, history has some relation to my choice uh, well, let, at let me ask you a personal question so most people that studied law had an idea probably of becoming an attorney Uh, very few people are going to study law thinking one day I'll deal with bioethics tell us how you made that transition uh, yeah I think you you shot straight to the point so I think uh, I went to study law because I thought it 
will be interesting. Uh, I, I was not sure about what I wanted to do when I was going to be older. I had some notions about how the law could be a place to make a change, but also I was kind of worried about what it will do to me to be a lawyer, kind of a naive way of thinking perhaps about the type of person I want to be and whether or not the choice of a certain profession would be a representation of who I am or will not allow me to develop in a certain direction and so on. So these were my thoughts as a young uh, person. And so I went to study law and I found that it was so wide in the way it looks at the world. Uh, there's a very famous law article talking about bubbles of law, saying that generally uh, by Professor Fukacha, which means that the law is like a bubble that the whole world can reflect on the law. So even if the law doesn't look at medicine, uh, some elements of medicine would be reflected by legal elements that define what could or could not be done. The same goes to other fields of our lives, uh, sociology, psychology, and so on. And during my studies there, I found that a really good course in my second year was about medical law. So the interaction of law and medicine. So I started with looking at how interesting it is that we need to define the right and wrong, uh, what are the limits of reasonableness in a professional capacity and so on. And from this course I started to join uh, the International Center for Health Law and Ethics at Haifa University uh, where my, let's say, international uh, connections uh, started to be fostered. And at a later phase, I joined the World Association for Medical Law. I started to, to get acquainted with a lot of people that deal with interaction of law and medicine in different countries. So you receive this um, perspective uh, that different countries have different notions about what should be the legislation in different matters of uh, IVF or abortion. And so you start to realize that culture and uh, ethics is also really relevant here. So the law may be one way of translating the way we view the world into um, codes and, and so on. And, and so over time, I, I started taking more and more courses about psychology and the law, psychological processes that happen when you interview people, when you're in court and you interrogate, uh, and uh, our memory and how it uh, influences us. And, and so over time, I started taking more and more courses that interact law with other disciplines. And in my second degree, I already started writing about Islamic medical law. So this is religious law. And people refer to it as a source for their decisions sometimes. And some people would refer to their qadi or mufti, asking whether or not they're allowed to have an abortion. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking, I wrote a paper on that actually after my uh, uh, second degree about, about um, abortion in, in Islamic law. And some of the uh, examples were of, of women who have been raped during wars in the 90s, and whether or not the uh, Islamic scholars say that it's allowed or not allowed for them to, to have an abortion in this horrific uh, circumstances. And I'm giving this horrific example now because we're talking about similar questions after the horrific uh, October yeah. 7th massacre. Well, but before we get to that, um, to the October 7th war and its aftermath and the implications, 
uh, I want you to take us back to um, the distinction. You mentioned uh, medical law, but then you also mentioned ethics. And we know that what's legal is not necessarily um, um, ethical and vice versa. Can you tell us the difference between bioethics and medical law? Well, so you, you said several things, and each of them could uh, deserve a whole uh, serious discussion, but I'll, I'll try to present one way of looking at it. So so bioethics is a term that has been coined somewhere in the 70s, uh, so like more than 50 years ago, and it, it refers to the study of the ethical and social and sometimes also legal issues that relate to biomedicine and biomedical research. So it can include medical ethics and, uh, you know, doctor-patient relationships and so on, but it also includes other aspects. Uh, so if I, uh, I do research uh, on, on certain drugs or on genomics and so on, it could influence uh, the biosphere in general, not just people, but also animals, future generations, and so on. So we are thinking about a broader spectrum than just the, uh, the, the current issues or the person that is involved, but also about society, about uh, nature, and, and so on. So uh, it's uh, informed by philosophical aspects. Uh, ethics is a branch of philosophy. And ethics also has uh, normative aspects. So it's about what is the right thing perhaps to do. It's a concept of the right thing to do because it's really not an empirical field. I'm, I'm talking about what should be rather than what is. And uh, the law is also with a normative element to it. So we still write our laws based on what we think should be done. And in this regard, the law is supposed to be a reflection of our ethical norms and notions. But at times there might be some kind of difference. And the question would be, why is that? So there could be cases where the difference between what the law states that is allowed or not allowed and what I believe is the right thing to do relates to minor issues. But uh, for instance, if the law is requiring, requiring of me to do something that I believe is completely immoral, then uh, perhaps there is a problem with the law or with my set of values. But in most cases, I don't think uh, people find themselves in, in a democratic uh, kind of liberal country uh, at odds, horrific odds with, with what the law states that uh, they could or couldn't do. Um, so so, so, so let, let me ask you a question that, that uh, relates to, um, you know, one of the uh, things that I find difficult to explain to people that are not don't have skin in the game, meaning they're not really involved in what's happening here, not emotionally, not physically, they don't have relatives, uh, they don't have family members that were affected by the war, is that it's um, we're fighting sometimes an enemy that doesn't play on the same ethical uh, field as we are. In other words, uh, we in the Western culture glorify, nurture, and celebrate life, our entire culture is built around the concept of life and the celebration of life. And what do you do with an enemy that actually glorifies and celebrates death? That death is part of the culture. And in, in many ways, it's unfair to put 
those two uh, in front of each other. Um, would that would you would you would you agree that this is an ethical problem? So uh, let's begin with your presumptions or the statements that you made. Um, while this is not my field of uh, research, I have not looked. I, I've, ri I've written some uh, papers about research ethics in, in conditions of war, but I haven't looked specifically uh, about this uh, conflict. But generally, I would say that, uh, of course, when there is a question about how can I uh, operate in a manner that balances between different rights or different duties, different values, how can I... Uh, be the best person that I can? How can I be virtuous in the face of, of evil, uh, I would even say? Uh, this is a hard conundrum, and, and it's not as if there is a, a very simple way to, to kind of offer a great uh, solution. At the same time, I would say that uh, whenever we talk about war in general, um, it's a big question, how do you even regulate the rules of law? And how do you talk about uh, morals and, 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 and war in, in the same sentence, right? And I think um, a society and people are measured in really, really hard times, very trying times, very challenging times. And I think while the enemy could really represent evil, which is a very big word, and there's a lot of philosophical writing about what evil is, I would say <laughs> a definition I got from... Uh, uh, the head of the mental health services in the past. We had some philosophical discussions as well. And she said, I would define evil when a person is opting to choose uh, a, a, a manner of behavior that is more hurtful than another way of behavior that they could opt to do and achieve the same goal. So if I could get the same to the same target or to the same destination in two different ways and I choose the one that is more harmful, that should be a kind of evil, right? So it's just one way of discussing it. And so she said basically that this definition says that evil is measured against the alternative. That could be one way of looking at it, right? So we are decision makers. <clears throat> Let's say I would like to achieve a goal. Um, even if I'm choosing uh, to do it uh, using... Uh, uh, military or terrorist act, still there could be levels. Now, I, I, it's, again, it's not really my field of, of discussion, but I would say that uh, the whole rules of international law and the different uh, conventions and so on, they try to do this balance. So, for instance, you're not supposed to be having any uh, aggressions or army activities against, uh, let's say, a hospital or an ambulance or a place or, where people... Or even prisoners of war. Right. And, and, and on the other hand, if uh, hospitals in, in Gaza have been used for the purpose of uh, hostile activities, uh, holding uh, weapons, holding uh, hostages, uh, shooting uh, missiles and so on, then this uh, kind of is in line with international law to have an activity that would be, you know, towards this hospital. But again... If you opt for the minimal harm, so there are always options. A lot of times there are options. So one way would be to just shoot a missile at the hospital. Another would be to have infiltrates go into the hospital, try to do a very uh, surgical kind of operation, try to minimize the harm to the non-involved and so on. So in a way, I think that's a big difference, right? So if we are to talk about the current 
uh, war, which began with uh, thousands of missiles uh, or rockets uh, shot at Israel from the Gaza area, then I would say that uh, at least uh, four of these uh, rockets uh, were uh, aimed at and, and hit the Barzilai Hospital, for instance. I, you know, so shooting uh, generally in the direction of wherever, that's one uh, way. Trying to be more targeted, that may be another way. Right. And while I may say that war is horrible in any case, shape and form, there could be levels and degrees of, uh, let's say, trying to act uh, in, in an ethical manner. And I could just add one thing. So specifically in medical ethics, one of the very well-discussed uh, theories that are used is called the double effect uh, doctrine. And this doctrine, while it has been uh, devised in the Christian uh, tradition and looked, for instance, at abortion, is also very relevant in the rule of law. Uh, in, in, I mean, in war, in the law of war. So for instance, if I need to to, uh, let's say, neutralize a place where missiles are shot from, but it's also a kindergarten or a hospital. So how do I balance those two things? Can I have an alternative? Can I uh, get the, the children evacuated? Can I do it on a day where they're not uh, studying there and so on? So this is the double effect doctrine, right? You're trying to balance between achieving the good goal uh, without hopefully causing the uh, the 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 harmful effect that you don't want to have. And, and talking about the, the, the enemy or Hamas, which is actually abusing the, the fact that they know that we will try to minimize harm, and so they're not going to uh, move away from these uh, sensitive places to, to kind of increase the, the dilemma on our side. Uh, but it's not just uh, something that happened here. We, we've seen it in other places of course, in the world. We've seen well. it with other Islamist groups, and we've seen it in other cases in history. Now, let's jump to the, um, you know, the, the interesting relationship between the idea of artificial intelligence uh, which is based on the ability of machines, basically, like the two machines we have here on the desk, uh, to um, to work and to produce knowledge, not necessarily with, with our supervision, um, and the field of bioethics. So what is responsible artificial intelligence in the context of your work? Okay, so, uh, so generally I would say that we can talk about artificial intelligence in the sense that we have a system, a machine-based system, that can make deductions. It can infer, infer from the input it receives. It could be from us or from another machine. It can infer uh, and generate outputs. It could have predictions. And those predictions could be about whether or not there's going to be another COVID-19 wave coming, right? Depends on the data that it received and depends on what it was trained on. And depending on the algorithm and so on, it could potentially detect different patterns. And those patterns could notify the system of different potential diagnosis or, or prognosis, what may happen to a specific patient, and so on. So you could utilize it in different ways, but in medicine, it could be wonderful and horrific at the same time. So just imagine that, uh, going back to the COVID-19 example, so if I could uh, 
algorithmically, uh, using an algorithm, I can potentially predict the new potential wave of COVID-19. So what would be the uh, measures that I would legally be able to use? Uh, to what extent can I explain why the machine reached this conclusion? So if it's a statistical model that is based on uh, machine learning uh, that I could kind of reverse engineer and, and, and get a, an explanation of why it reached this conclusion and I have a certain level of certainty, then I can make my decisions, overall scalable decisions about the lives of millions of people potentially, uh, with more certainty. But the more I only get the result, I don't really know exactly, I don't really have accessibility to the way that I reached it, then the problem is, uh, is a big one, right? So this is just, uh, you know, one example. And, and there are many, many more uses that uh, AI is starting to be relevant in, in the field of, of healthcare. And so if we want to use it, you know, we're talking right now, you, you mentioned those machines that we have here. Now, it could easily be done that uh, an AI machine or text-to-speech uh, or speech-to-text uh, uh, would work in the background and we would have a transcript uh, of everything that we've said. And with the press of a button, we could also have a summary of what we talked about. And it could also say something like, uh, let's say I'm going to be abusive towards you, or I would have, uh, I would say something funny, or I would uh, say something heartfelt. It might even use uh, potentially its training to detect those things and write them down. Now, it's not a big problem if it's not accurate, I think. Oh, it's nice that we're talking here. It would be great that everything would be exactly as it was. But even if it's not, what's the harm in that? But let's assume that this is an intake and I'm meeting you from, for the first time. And let's say I work as a, as a medical doctor or as a psychologist or as an emergency room nurse. And, and, and let's say the discussion is going directly to the computer that operates uh, based on that and sends you to different checkups or whatever. Then we really don't want to make mistakes. And or we want to kind of limit the amount of mistakes. Also, if it does happen that we want to improve this and have less mistakes, what would be better than practice on more and more interactions like this? So potentially, if I would sample or I would record a lot of these interactions of patients and their uh, caregivers in a certain setting, then it doesn't matter in which language, by the way, then over time I would be have, having a much better speech recognition uh, elements and note-taking and summaries and so on. But has anybody thought about whether or not the patients agree to be recorded, to be having their discussions utilized for training? And so all these elements would go into the discussion about responsible AI, which is a nice way to talk about ethical AI. But I think since ethics is hard to be measured because it's a philosophical concept, it's a normative concept, then if you want to operationalize it, to kind of translate it to something that um, statisticians and uh, data scientists and so on could translate into something feasible, then maybe when we talk about responsibility and we talk about specific uh, harm and, and, and so on, it's easier to measure and to translate it into something feasible. Yeah, and, and of, of course, ethics is very similar to other areas that are intangible. They're not concrete necessarily. They're more conceptual. 
uh, sometimes even abstract and very difficult to quantify them. And obviously, um, now you are part of the Samueli Initiative. You have a lab. Tell us about the work of the lab in the field of responsible AI. Yeah, so the, the Samueli Initiative for Responsible AI in Medicine Uh, we have uh, started this initiative at the university around uh, May of 2023. Uh, we started working on, on that uh, about half a year before. So really, right after, I think, ChatGPT kind of uh, when became viral and people started using it somewhere around, I think, November uh, 2022. So the democratization, let's say, of the large language models and, and, and AI Uh, started and with the uh, very uh, very uh, generous donation of the Samueli Foundation and their support uh, more than everything else uh, we started thinking about how we can utilize the knowledge that we have at this university which is you know the biggest in, in Israel with so many different disciplines in a way that would really relate to what we we started talking about here so So I would have the data scientists maybe working on a project and uh, maybe specific projects so they would also work with uh, people from the health uh, industry. Uh, but when they would talk about responsible AI, they would sometimes only use specific guidelines or specific uh, elements that they would uh, receive from, uh, let's say, the healthcare providers or the uh, researchers in uh, uh, psychiatric uh, Uh, statistics or uh, biostatistics, but not always involve the people from the philosophy department or from the law school or from the school of psychological sciences. And it seems that when we're talking about building um, an AI-based uh, system in the fields of health, especially if your approach is of a biopsychosocial approach where uh, we're not only made of our... Uh, biology, there are some elements that relate to our well-being and so on, then this input is very relevant and should be there from, from the beginning, from the planning, the designing, the way you train the system, what kind of material you choose to be uh, using to train the system. And so if you want to do it ethically, you have to start from the beginning. If I try to fix things at a later stage, it's uh, almost so what, impossible. What you're saying is that Your aim really is to help in the design of the architecture of the AI systems in the field of healthcare. Um, and my question to you is, uh, is that being done in collaboration with the actual people that design those systems or that the design is done at the Samueli lab itself? So first of all, the so Samueli initiative is really not a lab. I have my own lab as, as a researcher at the university, but I would say that I kind of shifted my focus about a year ago, uh, mostly to look at uh, responsible AI in medicine. I do uh, other projects as well, mostly about uh, mental health ethics and uh, capacity-related issues. So how does the law look at the capacity of people Uh, decision support and so on. But again, one of the papers we're working on is how do you utilize AI as another vehicle to uh, augment one's ability uh, in decision making. So in a way, everything now, I, I also look through the lens of AI, which I think is something we need to look at because it's, it's there. People are utilizing uh, 
especially now with the large language models that you could use on your phone, people use it anyway. We need not just to look at it and write about it and so on, but also I think to educate the people, not just the researchers and the students, uh, which is something we do, but also the, the wide public because uh, let's say I'm, I'm in distress, I start using one of the chatbots, I share private information, I need that, I don't really care, but then potentially it could train on my own stories and my own things I may not even know about it, right? So it's really important that people know more about how it works and also do not have false anticipations and expectations from it because the fact that it talks really nicely and that it could most of the time be so adapted to our needs and so on uh, does not mean that it will always do that. Specifically when we talk about general uh, purpose models that were not designed specifically uh, for the purpose of, let's say, uh, mental health care and so on, then the fact that it seems like it has feelings or that it talks like a person doesn't mean that that's the way it actually works. And it really works in a very different manner, which is based on probability. And so it could have what people sometimes term hallucinations, which I don't like this term because it alludes to the fact that it thinks like a person. It does not. But it could say something that is completely wrong or completely uh, offensive or, or rubbish, and that would break everything that was built just up until that moment. Right. And I recently saw a, a story in the, in the news media about um, a research that was done uh, that um, put a, a group of students with allegedly medical... Uh, symptoms, and they presented the symptoms to uh, a machine, right. and to human doctors, and the researchers compared the two, and the and the findings, which I'm sure you're not going to like, was that the machine was much nicer to them than the doctors in terms of accuracy was almost the same. Right. Uh, but um, so let me tell you about something I did today in in class. Right. So I'm teaching uh, nursing ethics. And the students are nurses. And so I asked them, you know, think about cases. And they did it anonymously using one of the tools where they use their cell phone. Write a sentence that you heard uh, while working or otherwise that a caregiver said to a patient or a family or so on that was perceived by you as insensitive or uh, otherwise offensive and so on. And that you think that could have been said in a better way and what was the context and they gave a lot of examples <laughs> horrific examples and then i told them okay so we're going to talk about ai so let's see uh what happens with ai and so i uh i uh, asked uh, the ai to claude uh, this time because we in hebrew uh it's it's a it's a really good model for hebrew and uh, i asked him uh, it right i'm saying him because claude is a male's name so i asked claude to uh, can you give me 30 uh, statements that would be somewhat offensive and so on and please rate, start with the less offensive and not so clear that it is offensive and end with the most uh, offensive one and there were some horrific statements there it's like uh, you're to be blamed for your own illness uh, uh, it's because you don't get, believe in God that you became sick and things that uh, are not considered uh, to be things that you're supposed to say as a healthcare provider at least not in, in, in many countries and, and then I asked it can you now suggest um, how this could be said in a, in a more adaptive manner. And it was really interesting to see that, although it's a machine, it, it really suggested interesting things. Now, why am I saying that? 
because we can all make mistakes or we can assume that somebody's uh, someone's uh, uh, father when they're actually their brother or their husband or whatever right it can happen but it was interesting to see how easily you can use this tool for discussion for deliberation for teaching for learning and what i'm trying to say here is that i don't think in many things the uh, artificial intelligence tools are going to replace us i don't think we need to strive for that in some elements they will for mostly in the uh, technical things that take a lot of time and are not necessarily that um, important to have a person in uh, like doing everything themselves but i think they could help us in many ways including in in medical education and so that was just a small example and i think we need to do that more and more uh, with our students, with our staff, and that's a part of, uh, I think, our mission. So Now, let me, let me ask you, because we're running out of time, and let me ask you one final question, because in, in, in popular culture, artificial intelligence, AI, became not only a buzz term, buzzword, but also a source of great concern and fear, and the most common form of fear is that we're looking at a potential uncontrollable, out-of-control machine that will be, become evil, uh, just like in the movies. Mm -hmm. And so what do you have to say to our viewers and listeners today, you as a person who's really on the cutting edge of trying to design responsible AI systems? Okay, so first of all, it's not just about design, it's also to conceptually think about what should be done, right, and how. But uh, I would say that it's 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 good to be afraid it's important to be afraid in, in in a sense so not just to be at awe with the amazing possibilities and they are amazing but also to be aware that when you build something as strong as capable with the scalability that ai has we need to think this very well and we're doing that in a way the so our initiative is not local in a sense we're trying to build connections and we've been doing that with different people around the world uh, with governments with decision makers with policy makers with the uh, industry we need to work together because the promise is amazing so I, I can say the following on the one hand yes if the tools are let's say if uh, I don't know a terrorist organization or a uh, uh, less be less benevolent country takes control of a specific AI tool and just removes the guardrails and removes uh, the fine-tuning that makes it aligned with ethical uh, values and so on it could be used to do just the opposite so instead of healing it'd be used for killing that's that's a possibility I do think that uh, the current uh, big players in the game have been doing self-regulation as well because they they knew that very quickly there will be regulation and they want to comply with that and I also think they actually care and uh, so in a way I, I think the human touch will always uh, be there it will be central and you probably know Charles Tchernikovsky that you know wrote this song I believe and I, I would say that I still believe in man man's spirit the mighty spirit I think AI should not take away from that actually it could facilitate our creativity, our doing, and it could free us, uh, having us more time to interact while it does in the background stuff that we may have been forced to do ourselves. So, well, Thank you so much, Dr. Oren Asman, for spending time with us, educating us about 
artificial intelligence, about responsible artificial intelligence, and about bioethics and medical law. Thank you for uh, your energy and your optimism. Thank you. Uh, I think that you made me a bit more optimistic about the future of AI. Thank you very much. It was Hopefully a pleasure. Hopefully we will get a chance to have you here again in the near future. And to our viewers and listeners at home, goodbye from Tel Aviv until our next episode. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomats.